tonight we're, we're right smack in the middle of a series that we've been doing over the last few weeks. This is the third week on pain and suffering. And uh, let's be honest, this isn't like a fun series, right? Like it's not a whole lot of jokes. There's a lot of seriousness to it. Uh, it's a hard topic. And yet it might be the most relevant topic that we could talk about in church because we all deal with it. It's not fun, but we all deal with it. And we've said throughout the series, we said, we live in a world that's filled with pain and suffering, right? And we have a lot of people asking, you know, why during this, the pain and suffering that they're feeling and asking, where is God in their pain and suffering? We said, it's all around us, you know? And, and even as I look around, I look in your eyes, like I know if we're not presently in it right now, we're all going to be. Sooner or later, we're all going to experience it. And so you might be sitting there in the series going, yeah, you know, I don't, it's fine, I guess. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in a whole lot of pain right now. I'm not in a whole lot of suffering. But the purpose of this is, is to prepare us, right? If we're not in it right, if we're in it right now, to help us while we're in it. If we're not, to prepare us, to file it away, because it's coming, right? Pain and suffering is coming. And so last week, we talked about a specific kind of pain and suffering. We looked at the kind of pain and suffering that just doesn't make sense, the kind of pain and suffering that there's no explanation for. It kind of feels random. It seems random at times, and it always feels very, very unfair. And we said, where's God in that? Like, where's God in that kind of pain and suffering? It seems random. I don't, seem like, I don't feel like I deserve this. And we looked at the book of Job, a guy named Job, and we looked at some of the things that he went through in his life. He went through incredible things. And Job asked the question, why? Over and over and over again. Like, why, God? Why is this happening? I didn't do anything wrong. This is unfair. I don't deserve this. And it's interesting. We said this last week. God never answers this question. God never answers Job's question of why. Instead, he answers a different question. God answers the question of who. In the end, what God does in Job's pain and Job's suffering, God shows him who he is. He, he shows him how big he is, how huge, how vast, how complex he is, and how Job is none of those things. So God doesn't give Job what he wants. He doesn't give him an answer for his pain and suffering, but he gives Job what he needs. He gives him perspective in his pain and suffering. And when he experiences a bit of the majesty of God, you know, he's hurting, God, why, why, why? God shows himself to him. And when he experiences that, his previous question of why isn't important to him anymore. It's interesting. It's like he says, you know, I, I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me, things, things beyond me, beyond my comprehension. And then you spoke, God. You showed yourself to me. I'd heard of you before, but now I'd experienced you. And my perspective has been completely changed. How could I have been so audacious? How could I have been so arrogant? It actually says, I despise myself. That's how Job responds. I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And so we looked at that story and we concluded some things. I'll just be real quick with this. But we pulled some things out of that and we said, you know, sometimes our pain doesn't always make sense. Sometimes my pain doesn't make sense. Like, let's be honest with that, right? Sometimes things happen to us. We go, I don't understand. It's beyond my understanding. It's beyond my comprehension. And we said, some pain never gets explained. 
Job never got an explanation for his pain, right? And we many times don't get an explanation for our pain as well. And we said, our pain doesn't always mean that God is disappointed with us or that God is against us. It's interesting, when you read the book of Job, you see God's not disappointed in Job. God doesn't allow bad things to happen because he's disappointed with him. In fact, he's actually very, very pleased with Job. And he's proud of Job. And then we ended our time maybe with kind of the the, the big idea of the book of Job. And we said this, my pain reveals my faith. My pain reveals my faith. Do I really trust the God who loves me? And we said, you know, it's actually really kind of easy to trust God when things are good. Right? Like when life is going pretty well, you go, yeah, I trust God. I got everything going for me. That's kind of easy during that time. But how do we trust God when life is hard? You know? How do we trust God when we don't have answers for the questions that we're asking? How do we trust God when the dreams that we have, the dreams that we dream for our lives aren't becoming reality? How do we trust him then? Do we trust that he still loves us? Do we trust that even in the hard things, he's working good in our lives? That's how we, how we left it last week. In our pain, it's a great question for you guys to think about, for us to think about. In my pain, do I trust him? My pain, how I deal with pain in my life, reveals my faith. That's where we were last week. Well, tonight I want to talk about a different kind of suffering. The kind that actually isn't hard to find an explanation for. It's not inexplicable. It doesn't feel random. It actually kind of makes sense. And yet it's still very, very unpleasant. It's the kind of suffering that comes from my bad choices. And the kind of suffering that comes from other people's bad choices. You know, one of the things that I, I absolutely love about the Bible is that it's so honest. Like, the, God never dilutes things in the Bible to make it more palatable for us. So many times the stories in the Bible are so raw and honest. And there's a story in the Bible that I think illustrates this idea of the pain and suffering that comes from our choices and other choices really, really well. And it's about a guy uh, who is the greatest king of Israel. Uh, the only guy in the Bible who it says very explicitly was a man after God's own heart. And he does something awful. And that's what I want to look at. So if you got your Bibles, flip them open, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. And it, it, as you're flipping there, I want to just kind of summarize a little bit of what's happening here. You might know the story. So David is the king of Israel. God chose David. God took a guy named Saul out of the kingship, and he chose David, right? And David's this powerful warrior king who trusted God in a way that no one else did. I mean, he absolutely trusted God in the most extreme ways. And then one day, so David's king is this incredible man of God, this warrior king who's had these experiences with God that are amazing. Like God showed up, showed himself to David in incredible ways, okay? David's in his palace, he's in his room, and he looks out his window and he sees a woman taking a bath. Her name, ironically, is Bathsheba. No connection. Taking a bath, Bathsheba. No connection. But she's taking a bath. He looks out the window, and he sees her. And uh, in kind of a creepy way, let's be honest, he starts watching her. He starts watching her. And it's not long before he thinks, I want her. I want that woman. 
And so to make a long story short, uh, David, who's married, by the way, the king, right? He's the king and he's married. The king gets what he wants. I mean, that's just kind of how it was back then. And so he has Bathsheba, who is also married as well, brought to him to have his way with her. And it ends up that he impregnates her, finds out that she's pregnant. And in an effort not to get caught by other people for his impropriety, he actually goes and he takes her husband, who was one of his most trusted warriors, a guy named Uriah, and he puts him in the very front lines of a battle that's going on, knowing that Uriah would be killed. So in essence, he murders her husband so that he doesn't get found out. And after he murders her husband, he marries her in hopes that people will think that the baby that she's pregnant with came about after they got married. That's David. That's a man after God's own heart. Just rotten choices followed by rotten choices. David commits adultery and then he commits murder to cover up his adultery. So then you get this prophet named Nathan who comes to David and he tells him a story. Basically, he tells him a story about two men, a rich man and a poor man. He says there was a rich man who had lots of cattle, lots of lambs. He had all kinds of stuff. And then you had a poor man who had just one little lamb that was so precious to him and so precious to his family. And the rich man has a guest come in town, a traveler come in town. And he's got to throw a meal for him. And the rich man goes and by force... He takes that one little precious lamb of the poor man. He takes it from him, slaughters it for the feast. Okay? And then this is what David said. You're in 2 Samuel uh, chapter, what did I say, 12? Chapter 12, verse 5. This is what it says. Look at David's response. Nathan the prophet tells him this, this parable. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Can you imagine how David felt at that moment? David, you're the man. You're the rich man. The story's about you. You tried to cover up what you did, but it's no secret, not to God. See, God had chosen David to be the king of Israel. He had rescued him. He had made him the king by his own choosing. He was supposed to protect the people, right? He was supposed to provide justice for the people as king. Instead, by his own terrible decisions, he caused them and himself tremendous pain and tremendous suffering. In the end, as the story goes on, in the end, after seven days, the baby died, actually. So she had the baby, Bathsheba had the baby, and the baby died, causing even more pain to David and Bathsheba. That's the story. That's what a man after God's own heart is capable of. Imagine what you and I are capable of. So, so let me recap. Let me be on the same page. One night, David has a lustful heart that gets the best of him. He forces a married woman to commit adultery with him, causing her to be pregnant. Then to cover up that sin, he commits murder by killing her husband, and he quickly marries her. Then they have a baby, and the baby dies. Summary of the story, right? Now listen, imagine, just imagine the pain and suffering that Bathsheba experienced in that story, in that history. Just try to put yourself in her shoes. 
it's hard to maybe understand in, in, in our culture, but in those times, she wouldn't have had a choice whether or not to, to be taken by David. When the king wanted something, the king got what he wanted, right? She wouldn't have had a choice in that. And so in essence, she was raped. She was impregnated. Then she was widowed by murder. Then she had a baby, and then the baby died. All because of one man's terrible choices. The one who was supposed to lead and protect the kingdom, protect her, hurt her. Incredible ways, right? How about David? It's hard, let's be honest, it's hard to have a whole lot of sympathy for David in this situation, right? But David, think about the pain and suffering that he experienced. He brought it on himself. But put yourself in his shoes as well. After experiencing this incredibly deep relationship with the Lord. Like David, you know, the book of Psalms, you read in the book of Psalms, so many of those Psalms are written by David. I mean, the depth of his relationship, his connection, his dependence on God was so extreme. After experiencing this incredibly deep and intimate relationship with God in an unexpected and an unplanned moment of lustfulness, right? Unplanned. It's just sort of happened. I'm sure it wasn't planning it that night. He took a married woman by force and he committed adultery with her. One, one impromptu decision led to absolute catastrophe in his life. It's interesting, if you go back and you look at the rest of David's reign, the rest of David's life, it's marked by hard things. It's marked by family dysfunction, war, all of that stuff, terrible things. And I'll tell you what, it makes me think that you and I are right there with him. We are all, everybody sits in this room, one bad decision away from catastrophe. It's easy to look at David and go, man, that guy is an idiot. How could he do the things that he did. You're one bad decision, just like I am. How humbling is that, right? Well, more than likely, he's feeling guilty for what he does and hoping he wouldn't get caught. He finds out she's pregnant. He makes another terrible choice by murdering an innocent man. Imagine that on your conscience. I know he's choosing it. But imagine the pain and suffering that he's feeling. And then he gets confronted by a prophet of God. The prophet says to him, he says, God knows... God knows what you did, right? He says to him, the baby won't live. The prophet tells him that. Baby's not going to live. Your family's going to be torn apart. I didn't go into this, but Nathan actually goes on, speaks from the Lord to him. He says, the baby's not going to live. Your family's going to be torn apart. The sword that you used to kill is never going to leave your house, meaning your family's going to be destroyed by, by, by fighting war, right? And calamity is coming in your life. That's the result of his decision. And then, think about the nation of Israel. Like We're not even talking about the nation of Israel. But the entire nation of Israel was negatively affected by David and the choices that he made. Wow. It's no mystery where that kind of suffering comes from, right? that's That's not shocking. It's pretty explainable. It's pretty explicable. People making really bad decisions. One person reaping what they sowed, other people reaping what that person sowed. See, sometimes pain and suffering comes about in our lives because of our own bad decisions. Right? Guilty. You guys, right? Guilty. Sometimes pain and suffering comes about in our lives because of other people's bad decisions. 
It's just how it works. That was what it was like 3,000 years ago. Looks a little bit different today. Pain and suffering is the same, but the situations look differently today. You know, today it may look like uh, my drug habit tearing my family apart, tearing me apart, and tearing my family apart. Today it might look like my selfishness causing me to miss the most important things in life and causing my kids to have a parent who's absent. Today it might look like my laziness causing me to not be able to hold a job and provide for my family. Today it might look like my lustfulness causing me to see people and treat people like objects because I keep consuming pornography over and over and over again. Today it might look like my unwillingness to compromise and commit to my spouse and instead crushing their heart as I seek divorce and I seek somebody else who's finally going to make me happy. Like the circumstances change, but the result is the same. Pain and suffering in our lives. Well, tonight I want to um, share with you guys some pain and suffering in my own life. Like some of, of my deepest pain. And I don't think I've ever shared this. I haven't kept it a secret, uh, but I don't think I've ever shared this publicly. And I just kind of, I kind of want to do that. I asked Marsha for permission to be able to do that uh, with you guys because you know one of the things we talk about here at church a lot is to be real and to be honest. And uh, life's not always clean. Uh, ministry's not always clean, right? It's messy. Lives are messy. And so I wanted to share with you a little bit of, of my messy life uh, because it's part of who I am. Actually, what I'm going to share with you, I told Demarsha our very first date, first date, think about this later when you go home, you go, you told her that on the first date? Uh, about 20 years ago, I made the decision to follow Jesus. So I was 20 years old. I'm 40 now. Half my life, 20 years ago. And um, a short time after that, I uh, you know, I was trying to kind of clean up my life. So it was summertime. And I, I came out of a lifestyle that was... You know, very hedonistic, very me-centered. You know, I was in college at the time, so I was drinking and partying and everything that goes along with that. And so I made a decision to follow Jesus, and I'm trying to clean up all that stuff in my life. And there's a lot of residue that comes from that, right? There's a lot of residue. And so I was in the middle of some residue, and I went to a party. And uh, I met a girl at a par- at that party who was at kind of a similar point in her life, and uh, you know we started talking and. Uh Pretty quickly, we got serious. She, we were kind of both coming out of that same lifestyle, and we both wanted to make God number one in our lives, you know. And so we leaned on each other a lot during that time. And so we started going to church together. I, I changed churches. I think she started up going to church, and uh, and things were going really well. Like I felt so good, you know. Like I wasn't doing a lot of the stuff that I was doing previously, and I was really trying to live for God. And so we got serious pretty quick. And after about six months, we got engaged. And, you know, like life felt right, you know? Like I'm living for him. I'm doing the right things. Uh, I, I loved this woman, and she loved me. And we were honest and open with each other and dreaming about what God would do in our lives. And uh, so we got engaged. Actually, I during that time, it's interesting, during that time was when I first felt like God was calling me into ministry as well. And so, you know, there's all that excitement, like, God, what are you, and, and all that potential, God, what are you going to do? And so uh, January 3rd, I believe it was, 1998, we got married. And uh, 
it was like a great day, you know? It was just wonderful, exciting day. All of my friends were there. All of my family was there. And uh, there's, there's so much hope, you know? We went on a honeymoon. It's just, it's wonderful. It's exciting. But it didn't last long. Uh, after about uh, two to three months, she started isolating herself from me and um, not wanting to talk to me. And uh, at first, you know, it, like you get married, there's an adjustment, right? Like there's crazy stuff that you go through. And um, at first, I didn't think too much of it. I didn't really take it personally. But I, I gave her some space and um, just kind of just kind of let her process through some of the stuff. And I tried to be there. And um, and then after about three months of being married, it was right before Easter. I remember Easter was in April. Uh, right before Easter. She she left. She left. And, uh, and she moved back in with her parents. And I remember, like, just being so blindsided by that, you know? Like, uh, I was shocked. I had, I had no idea that that's how she was feeling. And she said that um, she felt like she had made a mistake in our relationship. She felt like she had made a mistake by marrying me and that she didn't think that she loved me and that she didn't think that she ever loved me. And, and you can imagine how that feels, right? Uh, you just get married and you're so excited and, and then all of a sudden the bottom falls out of all of that. And I was devastated. You know, I was, I was just in shock. I felt abandoned. I felt alone. I felt betrayed. Uh, I felt like I didn't know up from down. I had never been depressed in my life. Like, I've always been kind of a upbeat, positive kind of guy. And for the first time, like, I could not, I literally could not get out of bed. <laughs> I slept a lot. I remember running. This is true. I, I, we lived on kind of a busy road. And I remember at nighttime, drinking some beer and then going and running up the road wearing dark clothes thinking I just wish I would get hit by a car I just didn't I didn't want to go on and we worked on it for a little bit uh, and pretty quickly she lost interest in that and almost to the day a year almost to the day uh, we got divorced and I remember just feeling so alone at that time and feeling, of course, so abandoned and feeling so hopeless. And I cried out, you know, I was a young Christian. I cried out to God over and over and over again, like, God, please change your mind. You know, God, save my marriage. I know you hate divorce. I read Malachi chapter, what is it, two? Malachi chapter two, God hates divorce. I read that thing over and over and over and over again. I claim this, God. Didn't change. She still made the decision. And I was heartbroken. And I was alone. The one that I opened up my life to the most betrayed me. And she left me. And I think, you know, like how do we deal with, with that sort of pain and suffering? You know? Some of you have been through similar things in your lives. Some of you have been through far worse things in your lives. You know, maybe a, a mommy or daddy that that didn't love you, wasn't there for you the way that they should have been. Maybe, maybe mental or physical or sexual abuse by somebody. 
maybe being hurt and abandoned by friends, being betrayed by people that you love, being made fun of, humiliated by others, being taken advantage of by others. Like, how do we deal with all of that stuff when, when, when other people's choices affect us so deeply and they hurt us so totally? How do we process that? How do we deal with the pain and suffering that comes from our own bad decisions? We all, we all deal with it, right? None of us are perfect. We've all made stupid, terrible choices that bring pain and suffering in our life. What is that? Is that God punishing us? Is that what it is? How do we deal with the pain and suffering that our bad choices caused other people, like David's choices caused Bathsheba? Well, I want to um, pull some things. I, I just want to share with you um, some stuff that I've learned through all of this in my own life and um, that the Bible has to say. The Bible has so much to say about the kind of pain and suffering that is a result in our life from our bad choices and other people's bad choices. Uh, I was, it was funny. I was on Facebook this week. I won't say who it is. It's somebody that goes to Grace Church, but I was on Facebook this week, and I saw a, a posting from a friend of mine, a, a mom, whose son struggles with procrastination, and uh, he had like this big project that he had to do for school, and he knew about it. I think, I think she said for like three weeks ahead of time, and she told him, she said, listen, uh, I will help you as much as you need for the first two weeks, but that third Third week, if you put it off, I ain't helping you, and you're going to be responsible. And I'm not nagging you, <laughs> right? I'm not going to make you do it, right? You're going to be responsible for that yourself. And so, uh, in her in her post, she was saying that uh, it was the night before the project was due, and he had put it off and put it off and put it off, and he's sitting there at 10 o'clock at night working on this, almost in tears, struggling to finish. And she stuck to her guns, and she didn't help him, and it was like almost killing her inside, right? Because she loves her son. She sees. And like that's that's why she did it, right? She didn't do it out of vengeance. She didn't do it to punish him. She did it because she loved him. She loved him enough to allow him to experience some pain and suffering in his own life so that in the future he wouldn't procrastinate, right? So as he grew and developed, he would learn from this experience. And guys, I think, I think that's what God does with us men. Many times. Maybe you want to write this down. This is, this is, I got five things that I want to say. Here's the first one. I accept and learn from the pain that comes from my bad decisions as loving discipline from God. I accept and learn from the pain that comes from my bad decisions as loving discipline from God. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, It's actually a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, but this is what it says. It's interesting. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. See, just like a loving parent, God allows us sometimes to suffer because, because of our own choices, because he loves us, right? He cares about us, and he wants us to learn from our decisions. He wants us to learn from our bad decisions. Sometimes we can look at that and we can go, God must be punishing us. I made a bad choice. Now I'm experiencing terrible things. God must hate me. God must be punishing me. No. It doesn't say he punishes. It says he disciplines. Those of us that are parents, you know this. Like We discipline our kid not because we're angry at them and we're going to teach them. We want them to learn, right? 
We want them to grow so that the next time they're in that situation, they won't make the same mistake. I think God does that for us. And going along with that, here's the second thing, kind of going along with that, I need to take responsibility for the pain and suffering my bad decisions caused others. I got to take responsibility for those things. You know, it's interesting. You go back to the very beginning of humanity. The very beginning of the Bible talks about the very beginning of humanity, Adam and Eve. And you look at the very first people that God made and the first bad decision that they made. And it says God told them to do one thing. He gave them kind of really one rule. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? He gives them one thing. And what do they do? They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when God confronts them for their decision to disobey them, to, to, to disobey him, uh, how do they respond? Do they take responsibility for their decision? No. They blame someone else, right? Who does Adam blame? He blames his wife. Husbands, we can be really good at that, right? Uh, my wife gave it to me. Who does Eve blame? The serpent. The serpent deceived me. Like, why is it that we as human beings struggle so much to admit when we've done the wrong thing instead of taking responsibility for that? The Bible is jam-packed, full of, of, of uh, times when, when we're told over and over again that we take resp- like we're responsible to God and to others for the things that we do, right? Romans 14 says, For we'll all stand before God's judgment seat, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Like, we're all going to stand before God, and we're going to be accountable to Him. We're responsible to Him for, our, for the things that we've done, for our actions in the body. Matthew 5 says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you if you've done something to them if you've hurt them it says leave your gift there go and be reconciled to them if I've hurt somebody I go and I, and I make it right I admit when I've done the wrong thing guys this goes so far with others like when we're honest when we're honest and we take responsibility and we admit our failures, we admit our faults, it doesn't, it doesn't take away what happened, right? Like, it, of course, it doesn't change what happened, but there is incredible healing for others. When we humbly go to them, we go, I messed up. I'm sorry. I, I take responsibility for my actions. I hurt you, and I shouldn't have. I'll tell you this. Especially, I think that's true with our kids. Those of us that have kids, sometimes we think as parents, like, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to act like uh, uh, I'm weak before my kids or that I make mistakes. No, they know you make mistakes, right? Like, let's be honest with them. It goes so far when you go. I've said this to my son so many times, buddy. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I responded this way to you, and I shouldn't. I apologize for that. It doesn't take away what we did, but man, there's so much healing that comes in other people's lives when we take responsibility for our actions. How about when I'm the one who's got to endure pain and suffering from other people's bad decisions? I remember when I was right in the middle of a failing marriage, and I was feeling so beat up, I was feeling so terrible. I did not want to be around people at all. But the church that I was going to at the time had a worship night. And I thought, I don't want to go to it, but I know I probably should. So I went to it. And it was one of the most joyous, just wonderful, worshipful times that I had ever had in my life. Like, I, it stick, I'll never forget it the rest of my life. Like, right in the middle as my life felt like it was falling apart. I had one of the most deep, intimate, joyful times. Why? Because my focus was turned to Jesus. 
right? Like we can, we can have our focus be on all of the stuff that's going on in our lives and it can overpower us. It can consume us. But when we put our focus on Jesus, something shifts. Something's different. The writer of Hebrews, he's writing to people that are experiencing significant pain and suffering. And this is what he says. This is in chapter 12 again. This is what he says. He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's so simple. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Guys, Jesus is the pattern for how I endure the pain that comes from other people's bad decisions. Jesus is the pattern. I can't explain it. Like I can't explain it other than when I take a step out of my life and all of my problems and I look to him, I look away from myself and all I'm dealing with and I look to him, it changes everything. It changes my perspective. When we're in the thick of it, when we're in the struggle, the hard times, look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him, the one who endured incredible pain from other people's decision, the one who chose incredible pain and suffering for us. When you're hurting, when you're struggling, shift your attention, shift your focus to him. Not only does he give us an example, a pattern to follow in our lives, like we can walk through it the way that he walks through it, but he gives us the power to endure it, right? He gives us the power to endure the suffering and the pain that we're experiencing through the Holy Spirit. Can I, can I say this too? Probably in a series on pain and suffering, you probably guessed that at some point during this series, we talk about forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is so key. Listen, forgiveness is the answer to healing from pain. Think about that. Forgiveness is the answer for healing from pain. So many of us have been hurt so deeply by other people, right? The people that shouldn't hurt us, the ones that we, that we love and trust our lives with, man, they can hurt us the deepest, right? So many of us have been hurt so deeply by people and we want to get past it. I want to get past the pain. I want to heal. I want to let it go. I want to move on. And yet I struggle, 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 struggle with it. Guys, listen, the answer is forgiveness. It's the answer. The answer is forgiveness. Honestly forgiving other people, like genuinely choosing to forgive other people that have hurt us. And, and listen, I want to say this. Us forgiving other people is not us saying that what they did was okay. It's not saying, I, it's okay what you did to me. It's not justifying them. That's not what forgiveness is about. Here's what it's about. It's us saying, I have been forgiven for so much from Jesus that I choose to forgive you for what you've done in my life. Guys, please hear that. I have been forgiven for so much from Jesus. Because of that, I choose to forgive you. I choose to let go the things that you've done to me. Guys, until we understand the extent of our sinfulness the extent of the things that we need forgiven from, we're going to struggle with forgiving other people the rest of our lives. Until we understand the extent of what Jesus did on the cross for our wrongs, we're going to struggle to forgive people. 
And I need to regularly be reminded of this, that unforgiveness, it's like, it's like a sickness. It's like a, it causes bitterness. It's like a poison. You know, I, I've said this, this uh, simile before, but I, I really think it's true. Unforgiveness, it's like me swallowing poison and expecting somebody else to die from it, right? It's poison to me. Let me tell you something you already know. Me withholding forgiveness from somebody else usually has zero effect on them. When I choose not to forgive somebody, it really has the effect on me, not them. Me forgiving other people is much more healing for me many times than it is for somebody else. Jesus gives us the power to forgive. If you've received it, if you've received forgiveness from him, he's forgiven us for so much it makes it so much easier to forgive other people. Think about, like, spend some time this week. It's uncomfortable. This whole thing's uncomfortable, right? This is uncomfortable. But spend some time this week and think of all the rotten things that you've done in your life. Some of you, that'll take a long time. No, just kidding. But think about that. Think about Jesus washing all of that away. And then think about how other people have hurt you and how much smaller it is compared to what you've been forgiven from. Forgiveness is absolutely key. And then the last thing, last thing before I wrap up, and I, I really, is I, is I thought this week and kind of processed through some of the deepest pain in my life, uh, this was one of my biggest takeaways. My pain helps me long for the day that I experience no pain. My pain that I experience right now helps me long for the day that I'll experience no pain. I think one of the reasons that pain and suffering is so hurtful for us, is so unpleasant for us, is because it's not the way God originally designed it, right? When God originally made all of creation, it made, he made it what? What does the Bible say? Very good, right? There, there was no sin. There was no sorrow. There was no pain. There was no sickness. There was no death. Sin entered the world, and it changed everything to what we experience today. But here's the thing. One day, Jesus is going to make all things new again. One day. Like, it's so easy to get caught up in everything going on in our lives right now. One day, he's going to make everything new. One day, it, it, the way that I read the Bible, if I read the Bible correctly, it's going to be even better than it was originally. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. That's why Jesus came. He ultimately came to pay for all those things. And one day we're going to experience everything new. And I want to encourage you guys, because you experience pain now. And again, whether you're in it or it's coming, you experience pain. Allow it to cause you to look forward to what's to come. And appreciate even more what Jesus did on the cross. And may, may it cause us to respond the way that John did at the very end of the, one of the very last verses of the entire Bible. The end of Revelation. That's what he says. This is what Jesus says. Yes, I'm coming soon. And then John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.